0: So one last bonus episode before we buckle down and work on season three of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast. In this bonus episode, you hear my conversation with two of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions project coordinators as we discuss the amazing work they're doing right here in Alberta. You'll probably be able to tell from the introduction, I just had way too much fun interviewing my co-workers. Season three of our podcast starts this winter.
1: So my name is Deandra Bruce Everyone calls me DJ. My
2: name is Marie Kalanka, and I am from Athabasca, Alberta. I was born and raised there. Um, my position with Rural Roots is project coordinator. Um, I spend most of my time working in the northern half of the province. And last question.
0: What's Athabasca like?
2: What's Athabasca like? I am a project
1: c- community project coordinator uh, with the Kainai First Nation in southern Alberta. What was the other question? <laughs>
0: <laughs> was it? We are so similar. It's unreal. <laughs> <laughs> We're all sharing the same brain. (laughs) (laughs) Kainai
1: First Nation is the largest First Nation in Canada, land base. There are about 12,000 registered members. About 3,000 of them reside on the actual Kainai First Nation. Um... I was born and raised there, well, born in Cartston, but it's right beside Kainai. It is a mosaic of landscape. There is a lot of agriculture, there is a lot of native grassland being used for ranching, and actually the little spot where I grew up was in a riparian area, so I actually grew up super comfortable with being surrounded by trees, even though I'm deep, deep in the prairies. Mm -hmm. Um, we are led by chief and council. So 13 members in leadership, and we do have our blood tribe administration that runs a lot of the community aspects and departments and entities. Um, and even though it's another reserve in canada many of us do have clean water many of us are privileged uh, to have transportation and be close to a big town like lethbridge or the couple small towns like carson and fort mcleod and we are still very blessed to have our familial roots like our cousins our uncles our aunties that
2: many can just go and visit down the road
0: What's Athabasca like?
2: What's Athabasca like? Athabasca is a great place to live. It's um, small community, north about two hours north of Edmonton. mix of um, mix of farming and industrial and oil and gas, but um, yeah, it's a great little town. Great little mm-hmm. town. I had a, I had a lot of fun growing up there.
0: I'm just really curious what your pathway was or is into this kind of work. And when I say this kind of work, I don't necessarily mean working for us more. You can call it, I don't know, egg work, food security work, climate work. And as I was saying before, like I can trace my path as a storyteller from the short story I published when I was like eight years old in the local paper which was all about how Santa Claus got so drunk on Christmas Eve that I had to save Christmas. And I, I don't understand why I knew what getting drunk was at that age, uh, but that's kind of how things started for me. So, I'm, yeah, I'm curious. We'll start with Marie this time. Well, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your uh, pathway into this type of work.
2: Okay. So if I trace it back, I think, I think the catalyst moment that kind of my path diverged onto the, the one that's on now was... I was actually living in Calgary 2015 working right downtown when all of those job layoffs were happening Mm. And I very quickly found myself without work and my husband as well without work and we Made our way back home to my hometown Athabasca I'd spent almost 20 years away from it thinking that I would never go back and then all of a sudden that became the only option and so I ended up back in town um, and after leaving your hometown for twenty years, like you said, you don't recognize it anymore. Mm. And so all those connections that you used to have, you've lost a lot of them. So it was really strange in my hometown having that feeling like you were kind of an alien in your own your own home. Um, so for me to combat that, it was get involved in the community. And the way I did that was through the local farmers market. Um, and then I was working on the the board of directors for the farmers market for a few years. Um, and getting really involved in, like in the farm community and supporting farmers and, and that line of work. And then the job posting for Rural Roots um, fell into my lap. I'm not even sure how. I stumbled upon it somehow, and that's what led me here
0: okay yeah and you also grew up on a farm too right I did
2: yeah yeah. I grew up on a farm but like I said my attitude when I left school when I was done high school was like I'm going to the big city and never coming (laughs) back I would have never guessed like if you told me like yeah when you're when you're 35 you'll be back you'll be back in Athabasca and you'll be doing this it was yeah it's total shock yeah yeah
0: funny how things work out sometimes yeah
2: full circle moment for sure but it was really it's cool I'm really really loving it
0: awesome great right DJ, same question. So what was your pathway into this kind of work? We've got lots of time. If you need to use the full two hours, go for it.
1: I just might. I have a story to tell. (laughs) Actually, I would say the momentum started about 10,000 years ago. I am Blackfoot. Nistoa Sokyo That means that I am a woman from the prairies. My Blackfoot ancestors are prairie people and mountain people. Um, So just that flow of energy between them and the landscape, I'd like to think really flows through me and my ecosystems. However, on a more personal note, when I was younger in my more formative years, my mom had gone back to school. She went to the Lethbridge College for the Renewable Resource Management Program. And at that point we were on the reserve. So she actually drove me and my brother to school in Lethbridge every single day. So then we got to spend lots of time with her. And after school every single day, she would take us out for walks in the coolies. And out in Lethbridge, like our coolies to the river bottom, are beautiful. They're beautiful native landscape. They have a lot of biodiversity. So my mom took that time to help share what she was learning with us, her kids. I didn't realize how much of an impact that had on me. And then a little bit older, I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to start writing fictional stories and fantasy novels. And part of that is being very descriptive. And I realized that The tender age of 13 years old that I had very little experience in the world so I just promised myself that every single opportunity or every single I guess experience that I had I was gonna write about and I wanted to just experience everything so even from then I started just taking every opportunity I could Uh, Every opportunity that showed itself, I really stepped up for school leadership. I got my first job when I was 14 as an Aboriginal junior forest ranger. Mm. And I worked with the JFRs for two years as a teenager, as a crew member. Um, Right out of high school, I went straight to university and started in the sciences. I started in biochemistry. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a doctor. That's what I'm going to do. And I took biochem, and then after the first semester, I realized that chemistry is just not my forte. (laughs) So there was a few years there where I kind of struggled finding my niche, finding what I wanted to do when I grew up. I took a bunch of different classes, linguistics, Blackfoot, um, anthropology, writing classes, And then in my early 20s, I actually got a job as a crew leader with Aboriginal Junior Forest Rangers up north in Fort Vermilion. And I stayed there um, in a tent in my co-leader's backyard for the entire summer and got to experience the north, northern Alberta, wild and just absolutely gorgeous. And I fell in love with the outdoors. And I just told myself, anything I could do, I want to work and outdoors. And then I worked for the JFRs for the next couple of years. I decided to actually follow in my mom's footsteps and went and took the Renewable Resource Management Program at Lethbridge Mm -hmm. College. And after that, I had enough classes from there and from the University of Lethbridge to finish an environmental sciences degree. So I... Was able to complete that i took some really awesome classes like river science with dr stuart rude and dr rude is one of the foremost experts in cottonwoods in the world so it's really amazing having that exceptional level of education um, it really inspired me to to strive to to be an expert to to learn all that i could within the natural world amazingly after the summer after I graduated, I got a job with the, um, oh, what was it called? It was the, shoot, I forgot what it was called now.
0: <laughs> you could just make something up. <laughs> I might have to, no, because we were
1: looking at trophic cascades of wolves, elk, aspen, and fire. So how all of them interconnected within the Waterton region. So, we were just doing data collection on the grasslands there. So, in the S Green um, and in the Y Camp. And we were doing aspen data collection as well in that area. So, just looking at the impact of like elk on on local aspen, um, what kind of impact that has on fire there. Because they would do prescribed burns. And this was actually the year of the Canoe fire. So it was really, really amazing just being out in Waterton, and it's such a beautiful, biodiverse area. It's a jewel of the country. Um, It's one of the places of the Rocky Mountains where the grasslands just meet the mountains. And amazingly, after that summer, I got my first real adult job as the climate change coordinator with Kainai First Nations, and that was under Blood Tribe Land Management. And just from there... Just worked with land management. Um, just trying to figure out solutions to solving the world. And I still eventually want to write about it.
0: Cool. <laughs> Never actually thought of you as a, a tree and forest person. I've always thought of you more like a, a grasslands and plains. I didn't realize you had that deep love for the forest as well.
1: Well, when you think about it, I think they all feed together. It's all the same, same energy, and yet there's different dynamics to that energy right and then being able to tap into that energy with your your spirit and your soul when you're on the landscape it's that feeling of you know that high on life feeling so yeah i do love the trees i love working in the boreal i guess i forgot to mention i also worked forestry in manitoba for a summer mm and that was beautiful and terrifying knowing that if you ever got lost and your gps died you're kaput
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so. it was always good to carry spare batteries
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's one thing to remember from this episode carry spare batteries <laughs>
1: <laughs> right you can't do that on the planes you can't get lost on the planes
0: Be <laughs> pretty hard that's true <laughs> uh next question just uh, like most people that listen to the podcast they're primarily familiar with rural roots as a podcast but they don't i think quite a few people don't realize we do like a whole whack of other things so i thought with you guys here it's a great opportunity to talk about other things we do with rural roots so we'll flip it around we'll start with uh deandra this time can you just let us know what your project is in the blackfoot confederacy and what you're doing
1: we're more than a podcast
0: <laughs> just feeding my ego when you say stuff like that <laughs>
1: So when I took this position, I really had like high hopes of bringing renewable energy and being that voice of championship to the Kainai First Nation. Oftentimes, I will hear leadership saying that we are an oil and gas nation. um, And that just kind of hurts part of my soul for that unwillingness to, to change, that unwillingness to look forward and look to diversify. So that was my hopes. Unfortunately, it was during COVID when I joined the solar lab. So it was really difficult to try and get community on board. I reached out to the Blackfoot Confederacy, and they actually had some projects that needed to be done as well. So one of them is the one that I'm working on now as building energy efficiency and climate change capacity for the Blackfoot Confederacy. So right now, I'm just building modules of education for adults, for technicians, for Blackfoot members who want to learn more about energy efficiency, want to learn more about climate change, and want to learn more about our Blackfoot connection to to all of that. You know, how do we as Blackfoot people really look at climate change? How does it impact us? Why should we care? And those are the kinds of questions that I want to answer in my modules and be able to share with whoever wants to learn from me.
0: Marie, you got Mm kind of two projects going on. So you got the solar lab in Athabasca and then you also have the, well, you pretty much run all our agricultural activities now. So yeah, do you want to just talk about that, what you're doing for those two projects?
2: Yeah. So I started with Rural Roots as the project coordinator for agricultural stuff. Um, And at that time, like pre-COVID, it was workshops and field days. So we were going around um, to like different rural communities in northern Alberta and bringing bringing the experts to the rural communities rather than the other way around, which happens, I think, a lot. Mm. People are expected to travel. Um, to the expert and it was it was a nice way to spend things like bringing the experts to to the people that needed to talk to them in these rural communities um yeah so we were organizing organizing those events around like the perennial grains studies like out of the u of a and um we did a lot of like water management stuff and so when covid happened it changed like Everything in an instant (laughs) and all of a sudden we had to like figure out how we're gonna reach people when we can't leave our Apartments and our houses and Mm -hmm. our farms anymore Um, So since then my role has kind of changed a little bit and it's more um, I guess a little bit more storytelling now Mm. um, as we're like biding our time till we can get back back out there, but um, lately it's been uh, we're working on lots of webinars to get out there, so our passive solar greenhouse webinar we just did. Um, we did a, like solar installations on the farm webinar. So I do all the behind the scenes work for that, organizing them, finding the people to speak at them, trying to get people to come to them. Um, and then video editing, which is a brand new thing for me <laughs> that you, one of those things you threw on my plate um, that I'm trying to tackle as best I can, but um, it's going okay, I think. <laughs> uh, so that kind of sums up like the ag work that I do. Um, right now, kind of focusing on the four the four counties around the Edmonton area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working on a project there in it's Parkland, Leduc, Strathcona, and Sturgeon. So we're trying to target the specific needs of of those four counties and bring programming to farmers that that matter that matter to them. And it's it's on topics that that they they want to learn more about. So in my work with railroads, I've really noticed that like each each community is so unique Mm. and from like east to west and like north to south there's so many different needs happening across the province so it's been really neat to talk to each even like these communities that are right beside each other um, kind of like around the Edmonton area and see that just down the road there's like totally different needs Mm. from the community right next door and that's that's so fascinating I love that about Alberta it's been really cool to see that and I wouldn't have known that had I not taken this job and traveled to these other little small towns. We're all like really unique and different and, and the same in some ways, but yeah. So that's been cool. The solar lab thing, that fell into my lap. That was one of those <laughs> things that I was like, I don't know anything about solar, Derek. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to facilitate this. Um, but what helped me was that I was, I was a member of the community that, that needed the help. Um, and that's where my strengths lie in the project is that I'm kind of on the ground I know what our community needs Um, so I've learned a lot about solar since since taking that on but basically what we're working on there is it's a community-owned solar project um, where the benefits of that whatever the solar project may be are feeding back into the community so um, we've kind of bounced around a lot of different ideas in Athabasca like how we can achieve this and what we can do and there's there's some limiting factors like because we're we're going to have to at some point partner with the county and the towns and various like business organizations in town so it's we have to kind of figure out what we're going to do and how it's going to work but um yeah so that's that's what we're doing we're not we haven't totally decided on on project i think what we've decided is we're going to have many projects which is exciting it's (laughs) going to be an ongoing thing um but yeah so we're just reaching out to the community trying to find people um that are interested in solar um that want to work on a community project and get something going um in our town so
0: yeah Yeah, i was saying before i really like this new model we have with just kind of working, getting the people who are in that community to work with the community, I just find it's far more effective than just having one person responsible for the entire province, which I, I guess in some ways we still have elements of that, but now yeah. we're mixing the two together.
2: Yeah, it works really well. And it's it's great because you get to know people in your community that maybe you would have just passed by in the grocery store before, but mm. it's, yeah, the connections and building in town are really great. It's good. <laughs>
0: yeah. Do you guys ever do this? Like, I guess I don't do it. No, nah, I still do it with the podcast from time to time. Just like close your eyes and think about who you're trying to talk to through your work. Like, like visualize who that person is like for me It can be multiple people, but there's like definitely when I do this sometimes I like, get yeah, now I'm trying to talk to that person and they they, they farm like this or they, they believe in stuff like this and Do you guys ever do that? Or I guess my question is do you know who that person is in your head?
2: I think that person changes depending on um, like Alberta is so diverse and there's so many different types of farmers and producers and and rural Albertans. It's like Who I'm speaking to depending on what depending on what we're talking about that changes Mm. Because people people have different interests and people have different. Yeah Different things. Yeah,
0: what about you DJ?
1: So you brought up um, the fact that I had just Recently fostered a little baby boy Mm -hmm. So actually that shifted my target audience. Initially I was looking at Mm. the field technician who, you know, wants to learn more about energy flows and how it moves through the grid system, et cetera, et cetera. But now I'm looking at the childcare worker. I'm looking at the people who work day-in, day-out office jobs who might have some time to learn something a little bit different and yet be able to apply that to their own lives, be able to apply that to their work, to their organization. Um, people who want to say, yeah, let's make a change for the future. So to my mind, that is the the childcare workers, the the children's protection services workers, or saying, you know, we're protecting these children, we're taking care of these children. Let's also look at the planet. How are we making it a better place for them?
0: Oh, cool. Uh, Marie, for the projects that you're working on, I like think you tackle this question is just like with one answer, mm-hmm. but for the, the egg stuff and the solar lab, what are you hoping the projects will achieve? Or your hopes and dreams um. for the project?
2: I think for both, like for the for the solar lab project, like that's really targeted to my own community. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hoping is is like that we build um, a more resilient community in Athabasca that can like as we move forward and like some of these unknowns of climate change, like start to um, rear their ugly head that like our little town is is as best equipped as it can be to tackle those issues as they come up. Um, So that's my hope. With our solar projects, I also think it's in northern Alberta. Like it's not the easiest thing to talk about, so um, it's a great way to form a little, um, a little like sense of community among people um, up there, where you can you can talk about um, like these like really important things to talk about, like solar energy, solar solar panels, solar power, solar like installations, and all that stuff. Um, it's nice to know that there's other people that care about it too. Because sometimes, it, like being a person that that talks about climate solutions and climate change in northern Alberta, you can feel a little bit isolated. Like, I don't want to like stir the pot or like I don't want to like cause cause a big issue here. It's it's nice to know that you're not the only one because you're not. There's mm. there's lots of people um, that these these um, these issues are really important too. But it's like. The more visible we become in our community um, and the stronger our network becomes in our community, the easier it is to have that conversation with everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. So that's my hope with yeah, solar yeah. um, the SOLAR project, yeah. The ag work, can you repeat the question?
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot I on know. This. What's the question? Uh, your hopes for the project.
2: My hopes for the project. Um, yeah, it's kind of the same thing, but on a like a broader scale, I guess, like a more resilient rural Alberta. Um, yeah, I didn't realize how much like rural Alberta pride I had until I think I went back to my hometown. Hmm. Um, so now I'm like, yeah, like we kind of we kind of get painted with broad strokes sometimes, <laughs> and it's like we're we're a lot more than than that and so yeah like having having a strong network of people that care about this across rural Alberta and empowering them with the knowledge um, to have like those conversations because how we move forward it's going to be through having these like sometimes difficult conversations so the more people that feel comfortable talking about it like the better for all of us I think moving forward
0: Okay,
1: cool, yeah good, thanks
2: can I just say this entire time, I thought you
1: were saying egg and not egg. Oh, really? <laughs> That's
0: my, my Eastern Canadian accent. Egg. I'm we, sorry. We
2: only work with egg formulas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No other type of bird.
1: you're we like. I think at the beginning you were saying something about like an eggy type of feeling to your hometown, Derek? I was like uh, Egg Egg Egg, egg?
2: Yeah. was
0: Quite cute. round. <laughs> <laughs> Bit smelly. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Yeah, same question to you, Deandra. What what are your hopes for your project?
1: I hope to inspire nations.
0: Wow, that's, that's, yeah. that's huge. When we were talking about like upping our ambition earlier or something, I didn't realize it was like global. Let's yeah. take over the world.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think for, for my project, my, my hopes and dreams for my project is really just to be able to deliver that knowledge in an accessible way so that individuals, you know, no matter the, their capabilities, can still understand it at a fundamental level. Um, I really hope that it inspires others to take action in their own organizations, whatever that looks like. Does it look like just being the champion of recycling in your org? Mm. Or does it look like you're the person who wants to put solar panels on your organization's building? And with that, what are the tools and what are the the skills that I can help you achieve through this education, through this learning? I think eventually I just want to build a coalition of Blackfoot energy champions, Blackfoot energy warriors who can stand up and say, no, we do have those capabilities of bringing renewable energy to our communities. Yes, we are facing a lot of issues, a lot of socioeconomic issues, a lot of issues from colonialism, a lot of racial tensions from our surrounding neighbors. How do we tackle these issues in a way that benefits ultimately everyone? Mm -hmm. I think that's my hope and dreams for for this project. Um, earlier we were talking about co-benefits mm. within, within this organization, within Rural Roots. And I actually really like one of our, our values is empowering the community and inspiring the community to think and talk about really community centralized solutions versus only talking about climate solutions. I think again, climate science, it's a lot like just solving puzzle and connecting dots, but it's still sometimes just really difficult to grasp. So how are we making that easier for the general person to grasp those concepts?
0: Mm. I was just thinking we were talking about empowering, inspiring communities that it actually it goes both ways too. Like I've definitely felt and powered by communities in rural Alberta when I when I see what they do, like whether it's like a solar farm or trying to switch uh, egg practices, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and inspired too. Like some of the stories, like uh, the the webinar we did with Innisfail and all these great things they're doing with their stuff. And it's kind of yeah, kind of it's almost like you give and you get too. So I really like that. What could rural roots be doing better? Who wants to start? Deandra. Deandra. <laughs> the, the quiet one, apparently.
1: <laughs> I am just full of silence. <laughs> what could Rural Roots be doing better? I think this is something I call on any organization and any network that I really get to work with is how are we engaging indigenous communities from the nations themselves to even the urban indigenous population. How are Um, we really connecting with the youth, with the indigenous youth? How are we making ourselves, our information, our climate solutions accessible for, for these populations? It's definitely a demographic that I see non indigenous people struggling with with how to connect and how to how to bridge, um, how to build communication. How to do it better, I think, is definitely a different question. Mm -hmm. But I think it could be better.
0: In your case, you know, Marie, you've been with the organization longer than most coordinators. Except for me. (laughs) Except Um, for you, yeah. uh, What do you think we could do better?
2: Uh, Something that I've slowly started to notice as I go to, like, these conferences and, like, webinars and hearing other people talk is that there's a lot of, like, in this line of work, there's a lot of silos. So it's, like, the ag industry is working within the ag industry to try and solve, like, these issues of, of climate change. And then the oil and gas industry is working within the oil and gas sector to try and solve. And everybody, like, whether it's ag, oil and gas, or, like, even like a watershed or a, like, municipality. We're all working within our own means to tackle just parts of the problem. Mm. And I think where we all need to do better is to start working together because the problem is so complex and it's going to require a complex solution. But each of us are only kind of looking at a piece of the puzzle. And we need to, like, put all those pieces together. Okay. yeah. Yeah. But that is... That is something that I think everybody. Needs. Yeah, it's like it's a huge problem. I think, I think we all need to talk more and yeah, liaise and network and all those buzzwords. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> what do you say, DJ?
1: As you say, I think that actually does touch on like what what I just said, like building mm. those connections and communications within the sectors, within demographics. Absolutely, building those bridges. Is that something rural roots has the capacity to do? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'd like to think so. Mm. You know, we are talking to rural people about climate solutions. Um, yeah.
0: I, okay. Well, yeah. Like, like I said, one of my questions does have to do with like how do we bridge those divides that um, it, the. There have been folks who've described the organization as the organization that works really well in the messy middle that, you know, we, we can be in sort of the climate scene and the agricultural scene at the exact same time, but there's other divides that need to be bridged, like the uh, the urban rural divide, the indigenous, non-indigenous divide, like how do how do we do all this bridging?
2: Hmm. I think we we do a really good job of trying to be as inclusive as possible Mm. in our work now and I think moving forward like whether we're trying to bridge like urban rural it's like we kind of have at our events like everybody's a welcome attitude Mm. like not everybody's coming into our workshops with the same point of view or the same motivation for like um, wanting to move forward with like a climate solution as a farm solution like people have different motivations for doing that Mm. so I think maybe moving forward it's like it's just continuing to, yeah, be really inclusive. Um, letting everybody have their own reasons for doing it, but like, like you say, giving them that knowledge so that they can use it however, however they choose to, to move forward with this. But
0: okay. yeah. No, that makes sense.
2: Mm.
0: What do you think? Any engineering tips for these bridges we need to build?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you, you brought it up a little bit earlier today, Talking about growing up, you were a little bit worried of visiting a First Nations reserve. Mm. And that's actually a really common feeling with non-Indigenous people. Um, And I think that if we really want to move forward and have those complex solutions and have those complex answers, it's going to take getting out of our comfort zone. It's going to take just being able to call up people you know or talk to people who you wouldn't normally talk to Mm
0: -hmm. Mm.
2: i think that's common you kind of fear the other a little bit you know Mm -hmm. like city folk and rural folk it's like (sighs) you're kind of scared of each other a little bit and and yeah like being being inclusive and and bridging that gap in taking yourself out of your comfort zone and finding like those commonalities that we all have, um, I think is really important. Mm. Yeah. I think for for me, this is why I'm really excited
1: about the next generation of indigenous youth who are coming up. There's so many leaders and so many innovators and so many, you know, creative natives um, who are bridging their own gaps. And honestly, it is, it is terrifying realizing that history of residential school intergenerational trauma and having to heal that and maybe you were privileged or blessed enough not to have to heal that that maybe your parents broke that cycle and yet realizing that there are others out there who haven't broken that cycle and yet these are the people these these are the the future leaders coming out of that being able to face the world face the university or college or the city life. Yeah.
2: Mm.
1: And I'm really excited for them to be leaders because they are fearless. <laughs> so, Derek, what, what do you think we could be doing better?
0: Hmm. We, po- we couldn't possibly hire better coordinators because we're really <laughs> good at that. Um, we could. I guess the one thing, and I alluded to it earlier, is just we I love our storytelling content. I love that, you know, we're willing to put ourselves out there, try and bridge those divides, uh, but impacting action on the ground with, with the exception of the solar lab. It doesn't I don't think we have a heck of a lot of influence and I also don't know how to gain a lot of influence on that but I think if we could Facilitate that to happen it would be great. One of the easiest ways to do it would just be if we had money for it Like okay, you want to switch your agriculture practice like here's yeah. a hundred thousand dollars go, you know I uh, last time I checked. We don't have that kind of money. Uh, we got it for Deandra's podcast That's gonna come out on November 1st of
2: 2020. <laughs> That's not much time That's not a <laughs> lot of time
0: I have faith, I have faith <laughs> but yeah paying producers to actually make those switches we really don't have that so you know we we can tell their stories we can Mm -hmm. provide information but like that part and like that's been eating at me er, practically ever since we started the project that is like it's it's good we're putting information out there but actually getting the implementation stuff on the ground um yeah that's that's something i think we kind of struggle with too Mm -hmm. and i think also like uh, i I would like to be a bit more representative of rural Alberta. Cause I like, I think egg ag- agriculture is <laughs> always going to be like the, the heart of the whole thing. Cause that's how it started. It was created by agriculture producers, but like rural Alberta isn't just farmers. There's other people out there and I'm not too sure if we're working with them as well as we could be. So I would like, yeah, I really want this to be about community. So I think we'd work on that and definitely to have like a, better like relationship with uh, metis people in the province because honestly we don't really talk to them very often and a better like nation-to-nation relationship too with our first nation partners and yeah, we're, we're kind of making this up as we go along and you know we're going to make mistakes we have made mistakes um but yeah trying to figure out the, how to do that and still like represent that you know the, A lot of farmers feel quite marginalized so not not to ignore them and their needs Mm -hmm. Um, but also being able to be like a good yeah I guess a better treaty partner than we have been so far as an organization How we do that? I have no idea. (laughs) It's just trial and error trial and error work in progress. Yeah, Yeah, exactly
1: So for rural roots What made you or I guess what started the organization? to be more community centric Versus something prescriptive.
0: Hmm. So definitely, like it started like we're just gonna talk agriculture, and that that was it. And um, and I, I think we only thought the project was gonna last one year or two because we figured we were either gonna lose funding or interest or something like that. And didn't happen. No, at <laughs> <but>, uh, <laughs> yeah. the exact opposite. Happenings. Um So I I, like I can't really pinpoint the time there was that switch to communities, but I I think it just the more we talked about how we were communicating these agriculture practices and farm technology and the more I thought about it it is like, well, like it's not just farmers that want like healthy land and biodiversity, like we're all going to benefit from that. So it's not just an agriculture story, it's a community story, too. And just, I don't know, some of the communities I've been to in rural Alberta that are just hurting right now. Like, it kind of there's a bit of a flight of young people to cities. Um, And especially with the downturn, too, like, so many of those communities were dependent on oil and gas, either, like, directly or indirectly. And it's, in some ways, maybe it's not nice to say it, but some of those communities are really going to have to reinvent themselves whether they want to or not. And I just think, like, this new way of engaging with energy uh new technology it's i think it's a way for a lot of these communities to reinvent themselves if that's what they choose to do like obviously i don't want to force them to do it i don't want to be prescriptive but it's like listen if you want to walk this path we're more than willing to walk it with you mm-hmm. so were you waving at me or were you just stretching oh, I just okay it wasn't too Terry. it's like your mic's not on <laughs> this whole time <laughs> it's a great rant too <laughs> Uh, We say farm solutions can be climate solutions and climate solutions are farm solutions Mm -hmm. Are they and why?
2: Climate solutions. Yeah, they're absolutely farm solutions because like what are we What and how are we going to farm if we don't look after the like our environment and the climate and and all of these things that we talk about Mm. Like they have to be a part of it for sure Mm. Yeah like you said this morning, not every farm solution is necessarily a climate solution. But There's I think that. every climate solution, uh, maybe some more directly than others, has a potential benefit for the farm, I think. Because farmers and producers are so tied to the land. You know, they're they're like, yeah, they're just like on the front lines of it, right? They, mm-hmm. they can tell you what the weather was like like 10 years ago. And they're, they're so connected to all those cycles that, Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Okay. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right. Is there a connection between renewables and Blackfoot worldview or culture? And if there is, what is it exactly? And if there's not, that's okay too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, when I first started as a climate change coordinator in Kainai, I was hosting workshops and trying to go to the local high school. And talk to students about renewables about climate change one of those visits there was a few elders present as well with the high school students and as I was talking one of the elders he kind of raised his hand and he was like well you know our buffalo was our first solar battery Hmm. I really think about it it's just the way that we think of energy now there's that that ebb and flow of energy this you know the sun feeds the grass and the grass feeds the bison and the bison fed entire civilizations on the plains we say since time immemorial for at least 10,000 years there was ceremony in every single thing we did living on the plains there was ceremony when we woke up There was ceremony when we ate. There was ceremony when we met with each other. There was ceremony in the way that we harvested animals and plants. There was ceremony in the way that we put together our shelters, the way that we painted our shelters. There was ceremony in in everything. And there is that reciprocal balance of respect between humans, and the natural world at that point. So now, in this modern day and age, when we talk about solar panels and, and batteries, it's very similar. We are expecting these solar panels and batteries and all this energy to help feed us. It is now our civilization. It's now our economy and you know, it heats up our food and it heats up our shelter. And yet, where is that ceremony? Where is that reciprocal respect? We demand it and we take it for granted. And unfortunately, the Western mindset has been on this continent for about 300 years. Mm. And look at where we are. Mm. I don't. I don't have a direct answer about how renewables can fit into the Blackfoot worldview other than the Buffalo is our first solar battery, but I think it needs to fit into our current lifestyles and niches as a solution, as one piece of the puzzle if we can get energy sovereignty for indigenous peoples, for the Blackfoot First Nations, it's not so much the importance of getting off the grid, but it's being able to empower these populations, these communities to say that they have sovereignty over the way that they use their energy, over the way that they get their energy. I think that's really important. That's the kind of empowerment that indigenous people need these days.
0: Mm. You brought up bison and I know the bison project that you're working on right now is not directly linked to rural roots, but it's definitely something that we fully endorse. Do You want to talk a little bit about the bison project or the sorry the lini project Or eni eni project eni Eni,
1: e-ni means buffalo in blackfoot.
0: Okay. Thank you
1: Uh, yeah, so the buffalo project actually really started its roots were from like 12 years ago, local Kainai members, uh, Plett Fox and Leroy Little Bear, they started the Buffalo Dialogues. And in those Buffalo Dialogues, they talked to um, Blackfoot community members, so across Blackfoot Confederacy, talking about Buffalo. What, were the, what was the mindset around Buffalo? You know, what was the feasibility? What was the, the viability? And essentially, the answers, ultimately, the answer that they got from community elders was just do it. Get the bison on the land. The rest will take care of itself.
2: Hmm.
1: Just do it. We need our relatives. I mean, really think about it. The last time this part of the world was ruled, was reigned over by the Nitsitpi, by Blackfoot people, was side by side with the animal, with the buffalo. Those are our relatives. They helped us. They really helped us succeed, and they helped us be who we were and be fully Blackfoot. They were our heart and soul of our civilization, of our economy, of our political structures. So since those dialogues the Bison Treaty, or the Buffalo Treaty, was created and the Blackfoot First Nations, I think two out of the four Blackfoot First Nations signed in 2014. And essentially what the Buffalo Treaty is, it's not very prescriptive. What it says is we, the undersigned nations, support the reestablishment of buffalo on the prairies, on the plains that's not verbatim. Don't don't quote me on that. <laughs> you can look that up. <laughs> but that Buffalo Treaty has actually been signed by multiple nations, multiple organizations, mul- many 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 individuals since it was written in 2012. And that really what I think started this momentum Uh, First Nations gaining their sovereignty and bringing back buffalo to their landscapes. So we are now part of this wheel in motion, this momentum since the bison extirpation to now. I mean, we have a lot of buffalo on the landscape and it's still fragmented, Personally, I'm not super happy with with fences and Mm -hmm. square fields just because of the lack of diversity, how it confines the landscape and confines the energy. And yet, when we see buffalo getting put back on the land, we see heightened biodiversity. This land, the prairies, the plains, it evolved with the natural disturbances of buffalo and fire and human beings on the land. So when we want to talk about soil health and water health and air quality, we're really missing a lot of those key components. We're missing the buffalo on the landscape. We're missing fire and we're missing people. So in 2017, the Kainai First Nation on um, about 30 sections of land had had cattle up until that point, but unfortunately it was, it was overgrazed. So the decision was made to rest that land for a few years. And at that point, uh, Leroy Little Bear and other members of the Kainai First Nations sparked an idea of putting buffalo, of replacing the cattle with the buffalo. And that started a snowball effect of getting more support. We have our Kainai Ecosystem Protection Association, or KIPA. And KIPA was a real catalyst in getting community members part of this project, part of this idea, this conversation. Because we are undersigned with the Bison Treaty and we're part of the ENI initiative that started in the Blackfeet First Nation in Montana We have a lot of support and there's a lot of momentum behind putting bison on the landscape for, yeah, for the reasons of culture, for the reasons of ceremony. A lot of people put bison on the landscape for economy, but a lot of people really put bison on the landscape for the revitalization of the land, for grassland restoration. We talk a lot about the health of the land, And part of that is we need intact native grasslands. Hmm. And we need those to come back with their natural disturbances. Yes, a lot of people really manage cattle well, and I think that's great. But I really think that there should be a lot of emphasis on restoration of bison. Hmm.
0: Actually, I heard from... It was a farmer from Manitoba, and I, I, I didn't actually fact-check it, but it sounded really interesting just because, like, the prairies evolved with the bison, and it was, like, literally, like, saliva from uh, the bison's mouth when it came in contact with certain plants that actually, like, I think it would, like, stimulate growth. Like, that's how close that relationship is, and it's a relationship that's been broken for a while, too. So, yeah, it's super important for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's, you know, important to the community. The community members... Um, not a lot of people talk about grassland revitalization, but they do talk about the need for for ceremony. Our Sundance... So the Indian Act in Canada actually stopped ceremony. It was illegal for potlatches to happen. It was illegal for our Sundance to occur. So our Sundance went underground and yet it still survives. And now it thrives. We have so many members on our nation who practice the Blackfoot ways, who, pla- who practice our Sundance every summer. Uh, they practice ceremony throughout the year. There's many, many members who do that. And it's, it's inspirational just seeing how much colonialism tried to take from us. Mm. And how much we're, we're still here. We're not going away. Colonialism and whatever this is that we're living in, climate change, is just going to be another blip on our radar. We've been here since time immemorial. We have our winter counts from, I think it was like 100 years ago. And the way the winter counts are written, they're written in a spiral fashion but every year only gets one figure one defining figure of that year for example smallpox the year of smallpox the figure looks like a closed tp circle with multiple members Hmm. in there so this is just going to be another blip another figure on our winter count as we continue to move forward and navigating the the current issues and the current realities that we face but i really do believe that if we can carve out that niche and carve out that space for our, our relatives to keep living with us to keep walking with us side by side i mean they fed our civilization they fed our success our ruling over this land i think it's about respect at this point to say walk beside us again Mm. let's let's face these challenges together
0: Mm. i like that thank you I've actually known both of you for about the same length of time. I know me and DeAndre haven't actually worked together for that amount of time, but I think I kind of met DeAndre around the same time you started working for us. So yeah. I, like I know that you're both really hard working people, like for your community for us and other things you do. Um my question is why are you doing this?
2: <laughs> uh, who first? I so guess Marie uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll go first. Why am I doing this? Yeah. Um I I guess I'm just really passionate about my community. I think maybe i I always was, and I wasn't quite aware of it, but as I mm. continue to work with rural roots, I'm like yeah i've really I've kind of found my my place, you know, like working in my community and and inspiring my community and yeah, um, yeah, so why do I do it i don't I just really enjoy it <laughs> i guess <laughs> um yeah, the work ethic thing. I'm sure that if I didn't enjoy the work i wouldn't I wouldn't be. Working all the time. <laughs> um, but I also do it, like, since I started with Rural Roots, I've become a mother no. as well. And so now I have a new reason to, to make the world a better place, you know? Um, and so that's that's a big part of it as well, is, like, wanting to... I want my son to see me doing as much as I can to fix the problems that are going to be inherited by, by him and his generation, you know? I want to be a part of the, the solution, not uh, another another part of the problem. So, yeah, I think that's why I'm doing it. That's a pretty yeah. good answer. I yeah, think that, I think that's why.
0: Yeah. What about you, DJ? Ditto.
2: Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did you have a baby thing at this organization yeah. lately? It's yeah. uh, pretty high birth rate, get, considering how Dude, many people work for us. <laughs> we're a healthy, thriving organization. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> why do I do it? I think... Initially, I wanted to join the organization. I mean, I had listened to the podcasts and, you know, we were friends for like a year at least. And it just seemed like a really great organization and really empowering. And I like that it was geared towards rural roots because a lot of Indigenous communities are rural. We can't talk about you know these urban solutions for small communities on on reserves. I'd like to think that I do it for for those communities. I'd like to think that I do it for to inspire the youth, inspire other Indigenous youth to say, "Hey, even though we're very proud on Kainai for our um, fossil fuel." industries you can still be a voice we can still say hey we need balance hey we need to diversify hey we need to start talking to our leaders and our family members about this and about how how we can help each other in the process like like you said there's a lot of rural communities where the youth are just flocking to the cities and it's kind of the same on First Nations reserves. And those that are kind of left on the reserves, it's almost like they're forgotten about. It's almost like, you know, the resources aren't there. And the resources aren't there for, for these kinds of solutions. So, how are we, again, demanding that space and demanding that our voices be heard in this sector? Right? And I think I do it for my son, too.
0: <laughs> are you guys optimistic about the future? I, I know optimism in the time of COVID is not easy, but uh, how are you feeling about that, that future that's in the future?
1: I think that COVID presented an opportunity. And... It's hard to think that we might miss that opportunity. What's the me? opportunity? I mean, right at the beginning of COVID, when there was no more airplanes flying, there was hardly any vehicles driving. I mean, we heard all these miraculous stories of animals coming out of the wild. You know, you see stars again. You see all this... Stuff happening just from a few weeks of less pollution. I think that really, really gives a lot of hope, gives me a lot of hope. And I feel like, like the energy of the landscape, my optimism truthfully ebbs and flows. Whereas there are moments in time where I absolutely am hopeless and it just becomes so real. And then there's other moments where again, like I see indigenous youth stepping up. I see youth globally stepping up. I see leaders stepping up. But yeah, I would I think ultimately we have a lot of work to do. And we have to figure that out sooner rather than later,
0: fair point mm-hmm. Marie
2: um yeah, I feel like um so am I optimistic about the future? I feel like I am yes, but it was a it was definitely a journey getting to that point hmm. from when like i used to i don't know that like when I was younger, I maybe didn't think about the environment and my impact on it as much as I should have. And as you start to care more and like seek out that information, it is really overwhelming and it can be like extremely depressing too. And so I I think I maybe said it earlier today, it's like kind of going through like the stages of grief Mm. (laughs) Um, and moving through all that. And like sometimes, yeah, you're just angry about the current state and then other times you feel hopeless But ultimately, I I am optimistic and it's through continuing to do this type of work that I've, I've found that optimism is like through meeting all these amazing people across the province that are that are coming to like these workshops and field days and are listening to the podcast and that care about these issues. It's... It's inspiring. So it's, it's like you were talking about, like, you give and you get. Mm. I feel like by, by, like, giving my time and, and work to this organization and meeting the people that we've met, it's, it's mm. given back more to me and it energizes me. Um, and it does make me hopeful for the future. Yeah, for sure.
0: Cool. Well, it's mm-hmm. interesting how, like, seems to be a correlation between optimism and allowing yourself to be surprised. Because mm-hmm. of this job, I just constantly am surprised by people and communities and stuff like that. But sometimes I think it requires the right mindset to allow yourself to be surprised and like feed off that kind of energy. Because mm-hmm. I, I think it's very easy. It's like, yeah, well, it's it's just there, but the rest of the province is all messed up, you know. But I think, yeah, yeah, you have to remember to embrace those moments when they happen. Like this is awesome. Yeah, this is, and I get to witness it. Yeah.
2: yeah. It feels small sometimes, but it's like it's the ripple effect, right? It's like one small drop. It's like the little things that you do they they influence in one way or another everyone around you, and then that in turn influences everyone around them, and it does it does carry on. It does feel hopeless sometimes, but I, I do think we're we're making ripples, maybe waves. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> Tsunami. Yeah. <laughs> A nice type. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, to be
1: fair, uh, a few days ago, I mean, talking about ripples, I was listening to something about how for every like action, there's a reaction. Mm. I think what really gives me hope is the fact that we've had the action of all these anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. There's going to be a ripple. There's going to be that reaction that's anti that.
0: True. Yeah.
1: It's just balance. Mm -hmm. and or Mother Earth or however you like to say is all about balance
0: how could you not have a good time with co-workers like that Jen our coordinator up in Peace Country unfortunately couldn't be there that day Brenda recently rejoined the Rural Roots team to help us run our brand new social innovation lab Aaron D in the Styler's Learning Centre provide us with a home Trina is the writer behind our Farmers blog Dana, Kimberly, Mark, our advisors for our agriculture program. Julie, Angelica, Colin, and Simon, our advisors for the Solar Lab. You know that saying, it takes a village to raise a child? Exact same thing applies to an organization trying to empower rural communities in Alberta with climate solutions. Deandra, you seem to like to do a lot of things. Like, you're on a lot of boards, you work for us, you work for lands. Uh, You know, you just started fostering little baby Mio. Perfect. Uh, I'm curious, have you ever considered a career as like a real juggler? Like, you know, flaming sticks, throwing them in the air, kind of like a busking thing. Have you ever thought of doing that?
1: I think I did. I think when I was a teenager and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, being a carnival person was definitely up there. And then, you know, juggling for sure, Um, especially juggling swords and knives. And then I just realized I have zero coordination. So that would just be dangerous for everyone in the vicinity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A project coordinator with no coordination. All right, Marie, you also do a lot, Uh, especially for us. Like, I feel like you went from just organizing workshops and field days to all of a sudden you're doing communications. And now I'm going to get you doing grant writing. Do you like? awake at night worrying what new task i'm going to give you the next day because i constantly change your job description
2: sometimes yeah right. no. <laughs> no i i always love a challenge so it's been really great at Real roads that my role keeps evolving so i i really
0: enjoy that aspect of the job for sure excellent yeah i gonna need that attitude in the future <laughs>